Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. When locals in Groveton, New Hampshire, drive by the old paper mill in town, they remember a time when it and the town were thriving. And they say, isn't it sad? It's crying time. I said, that's right. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll look at what happens when a company leaves a company town and hear the stories of the shrinking paper industry in northern New England. We'll also dive into the water quality in two important bays, where climate change, pollution, and invasive species are causing big problems. It's sort of classic signs of degradation. We can't say exactly what's going on, but we know that we're under assault by a suite of stressors. And we'll listen in as Boston producers get together to cook up some homegrown beets. You're around like-minded people, and we felt like there wasn't anything like that for producers where where it was just, you know, just a real community. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We're going to start our show with a dive into water quality. There's a lot that scientists have to monitor. Pollution, invasive species, and climate change are just a few. And these problems are often closely linked together. So it's hard to always directly find the cause of unhealthy waterways. Let's go first to Maine's Casco Bay, where a new threat to New England's shellfish industry seems to be establishing itself more firmly. Regulators are trying to stay ahead of potentially deadly blooms of toxic algae blooms that may be driven by climate change. An unprecedented bloom in Casco Bay recently forced regulators to close off a large area to shellfish harvesting. Maine Public Radio's Fred Bever reports. 30 years ago, four people died from amnesic shellfish poisoning after eating cultured mussels from Canada's Prince Edward Island. The mussels contained domoic acid, a neurotoxin produced by a class of algae called pseudonychia, The toxin turned up in PEI mussels the next year, but for decades after that wasn't heard from again on the eastern seaboard. But in the fall of 2016, toxin-bearing pseudonychia bloomed off down east Maine in some areas that previously had never seen an algae bloom, as well as off Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Regulators in Maine have closed down east shellfish harvests twice since then, and now, for the first time, a pseudonychia bloom is plaguing a large swath of Casco Bay. That's a worry here on an aquaculture raft anchored off of Windy Falmouth. So right now, this is our declumping machine and grading machine. Matt Moretti shovels bushels of juvenile mussels to be returned to the sea until they grow to market size. It's fed by a conveyor that we just actually installed. We're really happy about it. Moretti, who co-owns Bangs Island Mussels, is not so happy about the ongoing algae bloom, and he's keeping his fingers crossed that it won't affect his harvest. The company already suffered from an extended closure in the spring when a different bloom, the annual red tide that Maine has long been familiar with, shut down the operation for 10 weeks. Difficult. If we're shut down now, it would be the double whammy for a really tough year, and it would be bad. 
Bangs Islands continues to bring mussels to market right now because it's able to give samples from each shipment to a state lab for testing. And so far, so good. But only the larger aquaculture lease operations like this one have that capacity. The state instituted a broad closure of shellfish harvesting in the bay. Mussels, scallops, oysters, quahogs, and clams. For smaller outfits who can't do their own testing, such as Jared Lavers, who digs for wild clams in Freeport, it's a matter of finding other means until the bloom subsides. I have since hopped on a couple different lobster boats to uh, try to fill in the gap, but oh, I'm not able to make as much money as I, as I normally would. It's unprecedented to have a major biotoxin closure like this in December. Cole Canwit directs the Public Health Bureau of Maine's Department of Marine Resources. We fully recognize that people are out of work. But given the stakes for public health, there's not much choice, she says. In the earlier blooms of Pseudonychia, she says, the state had to play catch-up after recalls of several shipments of shellfish that might have been exposed before the threat was detected. Now, she says, more frequent testing for the algae and for the toxin buildup in shellfish is becoming the norm. When this bloom first surfaced, regulators moved quickly to impose precautionary closures. Now, she says, it's all hands on deck for state regulators and scientists. Well, it's not like red tide where we have decades and decades of experience managing this. We don't have any <laughs> historic data here. So we're trying to gather as much information as we can while these blooms are going on. The biological characteristics of the particular strain of Pseudonychia in question, Pseudonychia australis, are not well understood. The reasons they produce the toxin, we just don't know. Mark Wells is a marine science professor at the University of Maine at Orono who's been studying toxic blooms on the West Coast for years. He says the recent East Coast blooms may be associated with temperatures in the Gulf of Maine's waters, which are warming faster than most water bodies worldwide. We're wondering whether the warming in the surface may actually be selecting more for Pseudonychia so that in the fall, when the bloom happens, there's more of a chance that Pseudonychia will be the ones that are blooming. The uncertainty about the wares and whens of toxic blooms has muscle grower Matt Moretti and others in the industry strategizing for the future. We're trying to build it into our business, some redundancy, some geographic separation um, to get out of a high-risk area and into a lesser-risk area, or at least a an area that has a different sort of time scale of, of blooms. Redundancy will be costly, but worth it, Moretti says, to protect the business against the unpredictability of a changing ecosystem. That's Fred Bever in Maine. Next, we're going to head about an hour south to New Hampshire's Great Bay. The bay and its estuary have suffered from nitrogen loading and other problems for years. And the latest data doesn't show a lot of improvement. But scientists say there's still hope for the watershed. New Hampshire Public Radio's Annie Ropeek reports that they're trying to hone in on things that people can control. The University of New Hampshire's Jackson Estuarine Lab is on Adams Point in Durham, jutting out into the mouth of Great Bay. When I meet coastal scientist Kala Matzo on the lab's icy dock, there's snow on the shores and bright sun flashing off cold blue-gray water. It's beautiful, but underneath, Matzo says it's hiding big problems. Do you ever know anybody who looked really good? Like physically, you just look at them you go, or her and say, wow, they look like they're in real shape, and you find out they're struggling with a, a tough health problem? Yeah. So that's, that's, that's our, our bay. Look how beautiful it is, right? Doesn't it look great? And under the surface? Under the surface, uh, there's some issues. 
Under the surface, the bay isn't as healthy as it should be. It's been losing things that hold it together and keep it clean, and it's clogged up with bad stuff that's making those issues worse. Matso says that has an impact on the creatures that call the bay home. We count on being able to catch fish here and being able to harvest nice-tasting oysters and nice-tasting clams, and we count on the system buffering us from big storms. When a big storm comes through, it pushes runoff from the land into the water and churns up mud from the bottom. In a healthy estuary, there'd be plenty of eelgrass down there and beds of clams and oysters. Together, they'd make the mud more solid, help the dust settle, and clean everything out. Well, without all the shellfish in the eelgrass, you lose your buffer. It's like having a lawn that's just dirt, as opposed to a lawn covered with nice grass. Those buffers are what this bay has been losing, 90% of its clams and oysters and at least 50% of its eelgrass since the 1990s. Meanwhile, invasive, aggressive seaweeds have been moving in. We hop into a little skiff and pilot toward the middle of the bay to look for those seaweeds. I start to keep an eye out and I notice some kelpie stuff I recognize on the rocky beach. That's not the kind of seaweed that we were talking about before. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's not... Nothing's as simple as you want it to be. It's not like all seaweed is bad or all seaweed is good. He says the bad kinds lurk deeper down. The bad kinds are invasive. They grow fast, die fast, and eat up all the oxygen that fish and other bay critters need to survive. Okay, we're near the bottom here. Let's see what we see. When Matzo sticks a rake deep into the water down to where there should be eelgrass, he brings up just a few blades of grass with a glob of muck around their roots. Yeah, so now we're getting some more seaweed. Which one is seaweed? I'll show you. It's the stuff that, some of the stuff that has less structure. Oh. And it's all tied up in the sediment, so you don't really see it, but. He picks apart the mud to show me a little piece of seaweed. It's made of thin branches that tangle around the eelgrass and its roots. Huge, huge piles of it down there. 20 years ago, Matzo says it was not like this. That's when he was getting his master's degree from UNH. He left for a while after that, but the health of the bay kept declining. And then I came out here in 2015 and started snorkeling and diving, and I was like, wait, where's all the seaweed? I never used to see all this seaweed out here. So the seaweed invasion crowds out the eelgrass and the oxygen and shelter it creates for little creatures. But it also makes life worse for the bay's few remaining clams and oysters. It's a vicious cycle. Less eelgrass and shellfish, more seaweed, and the water stays muddier after a big storm. That blocks out sunlight, which the oysters and eelgrass and everything needs to bounce back. These are sort of classic signs of degradation. We can't say exactly what's going on, but we know that we're under assault by a a suite of stressors. So if it was your friend, what would you say? You know, you'd say, improve the things you can. Remember, Matzo said the estuary is like your friend who's really sick. He says that friend would need more testing, more information, and more help with as many problems as she could control. But the estuary's caretakers are us, the communities around the bay. And they have made some progress. Coastal towns have spent millions to upgrade their wastewater treatment plants, which used to load the water with nitrogen and other nutrients. More land is being conserved near shore, which helps with runoff. People are slowly planting more oyster beds and removing river dams that block fish migrations. Matzo says Great Bay and the Piscataqua River estuary are not beyond repair. There's very little science to suggest that we can't recover. What the science suggests is that recovery is hard. 
As we head back to the dock, Matsu says scientists still have lots of research to do on eelgrass, shellfish, and floating sediment. And he says towns need to try to contain the sprawl of new developments and better manage their septic systems and stormwater runoff. We know these stressors are here and they're going to continue. Climate change and more storms and these sorts of things. So we want to be as resilient as possible. And uh, you look around and see how beautiful it is. And that's an incentive in, in, in and of itself. Now that their latest studies are done, the Estuaries Partnership plans to go over their new data with local officials, hoping to give them ideas on how to help. That's Annie Ropeek reporting. So as we heard, officials in New Hampshire are trying to crack down on many preventable causes of excess nitrogen getting into sensitive waterways. But in New England, that's hard to control. About half of households in our region send their wastewater from toilets or showers and homes to sewage treatment plants. The output from those plants is relatively easy to monitor. But the other half of homes here rely on septic systems. That's the highest proportion in the country. For decades, most conventional septic systems have done pretty well removing pollutants and pathogens, but they're not very good at removing nitrogen, which is in human waste. And as we've heard, too much nitrogen can wreak havoc on coastal ecosystems. As New England Public Radio's Jill Kaufman reports, recent research indicates that even the best equipment won't do the job if it's ignored. So I'm going to really just flip through these first uh, few slides because this has been covered well. On the screen, just behind Sarah Wigginton, a soil researcher at the University of Rhode Island, is a graphic of how nitrogen flows through a household wastewater treatment system into a coastal ecosystem. Conventional systems do a terrible job at removing nitrogen, no more than 30%, sometimes zero. So these reactive forms of nitrogen get into our groundwater, our coastal ecosystems, cause algal blooms, eutrophication, and fish kills. Wigginton is part of the New England on-site wastewater training program, a place where experienced septic system designers, installers, and engineers take classes to keep up their licensure. On this day, about 30 men and women are in a small auditorium. In coastal New England and elsewhere, the problem with excess nitrogen is an ongoing issue. For a year, Wigginton and others took data from new high-tech septic systems around Narragansett Bay, and many of the systems weren't removing nitrogen at the level they were manufactured to do. So what goes into the soil goes into the watershed. We know that um, effluent and concentrations are not monitored after system insulation in Rhode Island. And that could lead to higher nitrogen inputs into the ecosystem because we really just don't know what's going on after we install them. Not monitored in Rhode Island because right now it's not required. And in general, septic systems are out of sight, out of mind, unless something visibly goes wrong. Just experience-wise, so all service providers from the back of the room, people start asking questions. What kinds of adjustments were done to the systems? Were the technicians who installed them qualified? These are industry people who get their hands dirty. They know just how many variables need to be considered before building something that uses a series of tanks and pipes and soil. Still, it doesn't matter how sophisticated or advanced the design unless you're checking, and that's required in Massachusetts. Our assumption is if you're not watching them and you're not maintaining them, they're not working. George Hoyfelter is at the Barnstable County Department of Health and Environment, which is for all of Cape Cod. The Cape is a populated, sensitive sandbar of an ecosystem where 85% of the homes are on septic systems. And the only thing that Massachusetts has done that is probably exceeds what Rhode Island or New York has done is 
requiring a fairly rigorous monitoring of the systems to prove themselves. And all new systems on Cape Cod are now connected to an extensive database, Hoyfelder says. And if the company hired to manage the homeowner system doesn't report nitrogen levels into the database, county health monitors know. There, you know, there are certain states which aren't requiring it, but uh, they should be serviced. <laughs> Jonathan Cardinal is a project manager at the Andrew J. Foss Company, which makes a variety of advanced wastewater systems. He's based in New Hampshire, one of the states that doesn't require system checking, but he works all over New England. Cardinal says Massachusetts wastewater regulations are rightly stringent for these advanced systems. They usually require uh, quarterly or they require semi-annual uh, testing. So right then and there, you can tell if the system, uh, how the system is doing. These advanced systems start at about $10,000, but without a maintenance contract, Cardinal says no matter how good it is, if something goes wrong, it is 100% on the homeowner. If these systems are not serviced, they will not supply the results that they're, they were designed for because they have to be cleaned, they have to be uh, adjusted sometimes. It's a lot of people doing a lot of decentralized work. Why not just hook up every house in every town to a single treatment plant where there's one tightly regulated wastewater stream to manage? George Hoyfelder on Cape Cod says, first of all, it's not affordable for towns to build. And he remains a fan of localized systems as long as they're managed right. If you ask anybody in the on-site field, is it, is it good for everywhere, would say no. But it is good for some places. It's simple, sustainable, and it keeps the waste closest to the source of the waste. It's having skin in the game. Keep the waste close to the source, and those making it may take more responsibility in cleaning it up. Creative, less expensive solutions do exist. And Hoyfelder gets very excited about the potential of composting toilets, which can remove 90% of nitrogen. But he says the social acceptance of something like that is a long way off. That's Jill Kaufman reporting. Check out nextnewengland.org for more on the health of our waterways. Coming up, what happens when a company leaves a company town? It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. We recently brought you stories about the surge in off-road vehicle recreation in New Hampshire's woodsy North Country. The tourism officials there have made efforts to draw ATV riders to the area in hopes of boosting the economy after the closure of paper mills that provided a livelihood for so many people. Meanwhile, communities in northern Vermont and Maine are also trying to figure out an economic future without the paper industry. A new book chronicles the history of a mill that sustained the town of Groveton, New Hampshire, throughout the 20th century. It closed for good in 2007. The memories of the mill's workers and the managers drive this narrative. The book is called You Had a Job for Life, Story of a Company Town. Author Jamie Sion is a writer and environmentalist who calls the North Country home. Jamie, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. Tell us about the background of why you wanted to write this story, this oral history of the Groveton Mill. Well, I was taking an ethnography course at Plymouth State several years ago, and the assignment was to develop a small oral history project. 
The mill had closed maybe two years earlier, and I thought that would be a terrific project. I called a friend who had worked there, asked for some names of people who could tell some good stories, and after the first interview, I knew that this was something more than just a uh, uh, a one-term co- uh, project, that this was, uh, there was a book here, there was a great story that needed to be told, and I was just hooked, and quite happily hooked, I might add. For, for people who don't know this part of New Hampshire, tell us about the town, tell us about the region. Well, uh, we're north of Mount Washington and the Presidentials in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, uh, quite close to the Canadian border. Uh, we're right along the Connecticut River, uh, lots of uh, pretty good-sized mountains, not as big as Mount Washington, and it's beautiful. I think pretty much everyone who lives here thinks we live in paradise. <laughs> Why is it such a good place, or, or has it been such a good place to make paper? Well, back in the late 19th century, uh, they developed a process for making paper out of wood. They'd been making it out of rags uh, up until about the time of the Civil War. And to make it out of wood, you needed a couple of things. You needed wood fiber, and we had the forests uh, growing spruce, which made the best paper. Uh, You needed water, a river, uh, because uh, to make paper, you require an enormous amount of water, and also you could get the logs from the forest down to the river uh, and then float them down the river to the mill. And then the third thing you needed was a a railroad access to transport uh, the the finished product and also to bring in raw materials. And Groveton had all of those. What sort of paper products were made there? What specifically were they making at this mill? Well, in the early days, they, they were mostly making what we call fine papers, which would be uh, writing papers, the kind of papers that would go into uh, a printing machine or a photocopy machine, although those machines didn't exist in those days. Uh, in the um, 1940s, they put in a tissue machine to make toilet paper, uh, facial tissue, and napkins. And in 1950, they added uh, another product, which was corrugated medium, which is the, the uh, sort of squiggly paper in, in, in cardboard boxes that gives it the strength. And uh, so the mill for the last 50 years was, was quite a diverse mill. Many paper mills only make one product. Uh, this mill made several products. Joan Bro is one of the people who worked at the mill. She started working there at age 16, and she worked there for some 43 years. Uh, she joins us as well. Joan, welcome to Next. Thanks for being here. Thank you. I'm wondering if you can describe what this company town was like at its heyday, as as Jamie calls it. Uh, what, how important was the mill to, to life in town? You know, I never minded it. Uh, it was hard work in the beginning. They didn't have the machines to help the person that was doing the work. We had to do a lot of hand-held uh, things like uh, wrapping paper by hand, and uh, it was all, it was hard work, but it was interesting work all the way. To tell me a bit about the work that you did there for for those decades. Well, I I was hired in Groveton to do, to teach the other people how to work on the napkin machines that they were just putting in up to uh, Groveton. And I ended up, within the second day or two, uh, 
working on the teal folder, which was the facial tissue machine. And I also worked on the toilet paper line, the perforator line. So it was just an all-around job, and I never knew when the week started where I was going to be working. Joan, did you ever face any challenges because you were doing work that mostly men had done uh, previously? Did you ever face challenges because people thought maybe as a woman you couldn't do some of the same work as them? I did have challenges because uh, one time the uh, film that they wrapped the paper in, one day I come into work and lo and behold, the paper, the machine was down and out of film and had to have a new roll of film put on. That roll of film weighed about probably a couple hundred pounds anyway, and it had a spindle through it, but it was down only about five or six inches above the floor, and it's very difficult to put a, fin a spindle on something when you are that load out bend over. So I couldn't do it. And I went in and told the boss that I guess they'd won because I could not do it. He said, well, I knew you wouldn't be able to. It's too much for a woman. We need men on these jobs. So then I called the union in and they raised the devil with this boss. and. Uh, he had to admit that usually it was two men that were loading these spindles, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. they had set me up. J Jamie, with, with all the people that you talked uh, to about this, including Joan, I'm wondering if you can paint a picture for our listeners about how people felt about the work that they were doing. Did, did they enjoy the work? Did they feel a sense of community about the work? Were they, were they proud of, of being a part of this mill? Uh, the answer basically is yes to all of those questions, although it's a little more complicated than that because it's it's an incredibly dangerous uh, workplace, uh, toxic chemicals, uh, machines where you can lose a finger, an arm, an eye, uh, stress about meeting production quotas, uh, the friction of working with people under, under stress also, uh, and yet and so I expected a lot of kind of bitter stories when I started this. And I got mostly stories of people who really valued their job. They felt that they were doing something important. Uh, one of the people I interviewed at the end of the interview, she said, I want to I want to tell you how much I valued that job and they could count on me. I wasn't one who called in and said, I, I don't feel well, I'm not coming. I was there every day, and if they opened the mill, I'd be there in a heartbeat. And uh, I, I met some uh, mill workers uh, a, a, about a month ago, and we were talking, and all of them were like, I wish we had that mill going. I'd go back there immediately. Uh, I really enjoyed working there. So it was something that was that was more than just a, a steady paycheck for people in the community. Uh, obviously, in such a small, remote part of New England, there probably weren't a whole lot of other jobs, if not for the mill. J Jamie, could you talk about the the overall economic impact in a company town? I mean, if if you didn't have a job at the mill, what would you go do? Where'd you work? Well, uh, you would not be earning union wages. 
you might be able to work in the woods, but that's tough work. Uh, other than that, uh, there, you know, there were stores in Main Street selling clothes and shoes and groceries and things like that. But it was the big economic engine. In fact, the first chapter in my uh, book is titled, uh, The Mill Was the Life of the Town. And it really was. Uh, the smells, the curfew, uh, the, um, the, the fact that everyone worked there practically, so everyone was related to somebody uh, who worked there. Uh, and there was a strong community feeling both inside the mill and outside the mill. Now, what happened when the, the mill closed uh, 10 years ago this past New Year's Eve uh, was that the local economy collapsed. I mean, just completely collapsed. Uh, out of 30 or so storefronts in downtown Groveton, eight have a, a going business. Uh, 16 are empty, and there are eight vacant lots. So that's how, what kind of an impact the closing of the mill has had on the town. And sadly, after 10 years, there hasn't been a lot of economic recovery. So we're still a very hurting community. So what happened? What was the cause of the decline? What specifically led to the, the closure of, of this mill 10 years ago? Well, I think there are two things. One is that uh, in any industry, uh, as the mills uh, or the factories get older, they become less competitive with the newer mills. And New England was the pioneer of papermaking back in the 1880s, 1890s. So we were the first uh, area to have old and aging mills. And unless the paper industry invested heavily to keep us competitive, we quickly fell behind. And that's what happened in the 70s and 80s. So there was this downward trend with lack of investment. In the, uh, around 2000, the paper industry itself throughout the country went into a, a deep depression. Uh, it was compounded by falling commodity paper prices and soaring energy prices, and paper mills require massive amounts of energy. So you had these global economic forces over which the mill workers had nothing, no way of controlling, and it just simply depressed the uh, paper industry so badly that Wausau, the owner of the mill, was forced to close one of its mills, and they picked the, the one mill that wasn't near corporate headquarters. Wausau was headquartered in Wisconsin. They had four or five mills out in the, in the Midwest. We were the outlier, and even though our paper was as good or better than any of the paper that their other mills were making, uh, we were the one that they didn't have a strong community tie to, and they selected us. But something really interesting happened uh, in Groveton about whether or not this mill could ever be used to make paper again. And that's one of the sort of strangest parts of the story. Can you talk about the, the covenant? Yeah, when, when Wausau decided to close down the mill, they did not consult uh, the uh, vice president of the mill here, uh, a fellow named Dave Atkinson. They simply called him out to Wisconsin and informed him the mill will be closing at the end of the year. This was in August. Uh, and... Um, there, there was there was no input from from the locals. Uh, when they closed the mill, many people didn't realize that they had attached to the deed of of the mill property a covenant that said this mill will never be used to make paper again. You can sell it. Somebody can make something else, roller skates or hula hoops, but you can never make paper again. And I would say that the bitterness in the town was greatest over that covenant 
everybody was was heartbroken that the mill was closed, but they felt it was a, a really dirty trick to say, and you can't ever make paper again. In other words, there couldn't be a, an attempt at an employee, an employee buyout, and, and, and the employees could try to make a run uh, at keeping the mill alive. That was, that was killed off, and, and that's where the, the real bitterness lies. J- Joan, could you talk about that, about the feeling that, that you and others had at the time that you were informed that this mill was going to be closing and it would never make paper again? Um. I was retired at the time that that happened, uh, but my son was a machine tender, and I know that there was a lot of bitterness, and it hurt my feelings to think that I'd worked in that mill for 43 years and had history with Mr. Weems in the mill in Northumberland before that for four years, and we thought it was a betrayal because it seemed like um, the the company never really put that much into it. David Atkinson tried as much as he could to push and give it a good uh, following and everything, but it just didn't seem to do any good with Warsaw Papers. And here, lately, they've um, taken away life insurance. It was one through the union to for the people that work there in Regiant. It feels as though, Jamie, it's more than, than just a job. This is a lot about uh, people's identity and a, and a town's identity, right? Uh, absolutely. And uh, really, the, the key word is community. Uh, I can't tell you how many people I interviewed who said the mill was like a family. When, when someone was sick, uh, had, say, cancer, a fire, uh, lost a family member in a tragedy. There was always an envelope in the lab where, where Joan often worked, uh, where you could stop by and slip a five or a ten dollar bill in, and at the end of a week or two, you would present the, the mill would present this uh, uh, co-worker with an envelope that may have a couple of thousand dollars in it to help them get through a rough time. So you, you describe in a postscript of your book uh, some possible futures for this region of New Hampshire. I, I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about what you see as the possibilities, because this is a story that's played out in so many different parts of the country and certainly of New England, where people assume that something will be there and maybe uh, there's not the economic drivers that allow that allow them to stay and and get new job skills and and do something else. So what what do you think works for a place like Groveton now, you know, 10 years after this mill and the identity of the place closes down? Well, I decided when I finished uh, writing the book that I couldn't leave it on such a depressing note. The final chapter was called They Ruined This Town. And I just, I couldn't leave it like that. But I'd learned so much from the, the folks I interviewed. I mean, they were my teachers. And one of the things they taught me was, what were the forces that caused the closing of the mill? And so when I got done writing the, the story of the mill, I made a list of the most important forces, uh, either that caused the mill to close or manifested unpleasant aspects of our economy that we might want to change as we go into the future. So, so absentee ownership as opposed to local ownership, 
Let's go for local ownership. They, those people are invested in the community. Uh, commodity paper prices killed the mill. Let's, let's not try to compete in a global economy where the prices are set by a market, uh, by the lowest wage earners uh, in, you know, in, in some other country. Uh, let's have high value added niche products that only the North Country of New Hampshire or Northern Maine can make. Really good quality spruce and maple wood products and that kind of thing. Um, and let's also rebuild our, uh, our local downtowns. We go shopping in these box stores, and it means that our neighbors who are running stores in town are going out of business. So if we can focus more on low-energy demand uh, manufacturing, which reduces our carbon footprint, which is essential in this age of climate change, if we can have high-value added products, then we don't put such a heavy demand on clear-cutting our forests, which are our greatest uh, economic, ecological, cultural, and spiritual resource up here. And uh, frankly, one of the things I most admire about my neighbors up here is they don't need to be rich. They are rich in the, in the community, both the natural and the human community. And if you can provide them with opportunities to earn a decent living, to raise their families, they don't require much more. So we don't need affluence. We need a kind of frugal prosperity. And, and, and those were the lessons that I learned from, from the mill workers. And, and, and I tried to put that together in a, in a brief postscript so that maybe it wasn't quite such a depressing ending. Jamie Sines' book is You Had a Job for Life, Story of a Company Town, Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thanks also to Joan Bro. Uh, she worked at the Groton Mill for, for 43 years. Joan, thank you so much for talking with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for having me and giving me the chance to tell how wonderful it was at one time. Coming up in Boston, a battle for the best beats creates a community of collaborators. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. This weekend's big snowstorm is good news for New England skiers. In New Hampshire, one man recently stumbled across an appropriately timed ski season mystery in the remains of an old falling down house. NHPR's Brita Green went to investigate and has this report. Rory Goller bought a big old farmhouse in Lebanon about seven or eight years ago. It has beautiful views of the Connecticut River Valley, a little orchard in the backyard. I mean, I, th I think it looks like what a house should look like on the New Hampshire countryside, for sure. It's mostly surrounded by open space, but next door, and I mean right next door, on one side is another house. And... It's not in good shape. Pretty run down, um, pretty sprawling. Lebanon's property records listed in, quote, very poor condition. Low ceilings, old carpeting, trees growing up from the base of the outdoor pool, Goller says. When he bought his place, there was an older couple living there. But a couple of years ago, the bank foreclosed on the property, and Goller jumped at the opportunity to buy it. It would have been hard to imagine what he'd find inside. Obviously, the interesting part about a foreclosure is it's not like they give you the key. They're just like, yeah, now it's yours, so you have to break in to your own house. What is your own house? So I unscrewed the door and, and started looking around, and 
this is one of the one of the rooms that I found. <laughs> In front of us is a mountain of downhill skis. They fill the room, piled high this way and that, some on racks, some on the floor. Probably four to five hundred pairs. Uh, and they're of all different brands, shapes, sizes, condition. So I love this one right here. It says bad tip. Yeah. You know, I had a couple of friends be like, oh, I'm going to grab a pair. And I'm like, by all means, you know, and they would take them to the ski shop and the responsible ski shop owners wouldn't even adjust them to their boots. They're like, nope, this isn't safe. We're not doing it. So The skis are decades old, and some are not in great condition. So it turns out this place was well known in town back in the day, and the man that lived here was something of a legend himself. You could go up and he would fix you up with skis, not this year's model for sure, but they would be skis that you could come out and learn how to ski and have a good time on. Erling Heistad is a lifelong Lebanon resident. He's son of the founder of a local ski spot called Stores Hill. I met him over at that hill, actually, at the base of the run. Down from the snowmaking, it'll puddle underneath there. Up on the side of the hill is a huge ski jump, supported by trellised sides rising high in the air. Heistad can still remember when it was built in 1954. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was 14 and that was built, and I was off it right away, going more than 150 feet in the air, flying down there. He says the guy who owned the old ski shop was named Jesse Truman. He passed away about five years ago, but he's still remembered by old-timers in town. And his shop was a real fixture in Lebanon back in the day. Thousands of kids probably slid down the ski jump on Truman-issue skis, soaring over the snow. I used to coach the Alpine program here, and... Kids would show up, and they'd be standing around, and you'd be looking at them, and they don't have skis, and you don't know what to do. And so send them up to Jesse, and they'd come back the next day, and they'd have a pair of skis and a pair of boots and poles, and they'd be ready to start. He says it didn't matter if the kids had money or not. Truman would give them something to get them going. That was just his spirit. And it wasn't just from Lebanon. They'd come from Enfield, Canaan, Hanover, White River, wherever. Jesse was always there to supply you with another longer pair than what you had last year's skis. Walking through the shop now, it's like walking into a time capsule. In the workshop back here, this is, I think, where the most of the ski tuning happened. So these are, these are ski tuning machines. I don't know if they work because there's never been electrical service to this house since I've owned it. Everything is still uh, in place. There's a tiny old TV perched up on a shelf. Old ski boots, never worn, still in their original packaging. Boxes stacked in towers against the wall. Yeah, I mean, I, I would venture that a lot of this just has not been touched at all in, in 15 or 20 years. Goller says he's tried to find a home for the hundreds of skis, but no ski shops will take them. Skis are made differently now, and these are too out of date. He's tried Craigslist, Facebook, even tried calling people that make things like fences and furniture out of skis. But no luck. And as for the house, it's just so run down, he says he has to have it demolished. That'll happen in the coming days. Everything inside, too, will have to go, and that includes all the skis. There could be some treasures in there, but they're so surrounded by other stuff that you can't find them and you can't identify them. And so unfortunately, it's just all going to go into a, into a truck and over to the landfill. Luckily, even if the equipment itself doesn't endure, the memories do. And that old ski hill in town, it's still run off the energy of a whole team of community volunteers. People like Truman, who share a commitment to good, old-fashioned winter fun. 
Brita Green brought us that story, and since she reported it, we got some good news. All those skis that were headed for the dump? Well, a local man heard the story, called Goller up, and asked if he could load up his truck. His plan? To turn the skis into custom furniture for the lodge at the ski hill down the road. Oh, and maybe he'll make a little memorial for Jesse Truman, too. We're going to leave you with some sounds from Boston, where hip-hop producers are getting out of their bedroom studios, where they've got all the equipment to create their own beats, but none of the community they need to make those beats better. From WBUR, Amelia Mason reports. It's late at night on a Sunday at Wonder Bar in Alston. A low mezzanine has been turned into a makeshift stage, where six guys sit behind a row of tables, faces aglow in the light from their laptops, feet tucked behind a tangle of cables on the floor. Mark Marin, a compact guy with a puffy beard, strides back and forth with a mic in his hand. He lays out a challenge. Drums and bass only. That's the only thing you can grab from your own arsenal. Everything else is coming from the 16-bit from Super Mario 3. Marin is the host of the Stew Beat Showcase, a beat battle series where local producers compete. The Stew, S-T-E-W, is a reference to the studio, but also to the producer's process, chopping and flipping, cooking up beats in their bedroom. And right now, these producers have 20 minutes to remix an old Nintendo classic. So yeah, I think we all good. We great. I think we great. When their time is up, the contestants take turns playing their remixes. Like this one, from the producer, International Show. Super Mario 3! Let's go! It's not about making your beats commercially polished. It's about being original, and that's what we really place emphasis on. Devon Guillory, who also goes by D-Loops, founded The Stew with Marin and their friend Brian Trench. At the time, Guillory and Trench ran a local talent night, and Marin produced a regular hip-hop showcase. They'd noticed that a lot of performers were using canned beats that they'd found online. Here's Marin. So we're like, that doesn't make any sense. How, like, why are you rapping to somebody? Or you went to SoundClick, or you went to YouTube, and you downloaded a beat when this guy down the street makes beats. Local producers, they realized, needed a place to be seen and heard. We just want to congregate because we love it, just like anything else. Just like you go to a, to a rock show, you go to a hip-hop show, it's because you're around like-minded people. And we felt like there wasn't anything like that for producers where, where it was just, you know, just a real community. In some ways, it's never been easier for producers to get their music out there. You can upload your beats to the internet, gain a following on social media, and even make a decent living selling your music online. But Guillory says that not everyone thrives in that environment. But if the internet's not working for you, then what? And that's when we want to come in and, uh, and really take charge and say, hey, there's this whole other world that you're not familiar with. Step out and get out of your house and come to a place where they're welcoming beats, original beats at that, where we're not going to say, oh, yeah, you know what? Rihanna can't be on that, so for that reason... We're not going to keep that beat. Check, check, one, two, check, check, one, two. I feel like I sound low. Do I sound low? On a recent afternoon, Marin, Guillory, and Trench cram into a little studio in Norwood to record their weekly podcast. A screen mounted on the wall shows a list of songs. 
They've been submitted online by producers from around the globe. The guys work their way through the list, critiquing each track. It was off, like it was throwing everything off, like the drums had a certain swing to it and the swing on the way the notes were played for the bass line, it just was throwing it off for me. That was the main The Beat Club podcast provides new producers with exposure, but Trench says their ultimate goal is to offer guidance and support. He remembers how important his own mentor was when he was a teenager in Dorchester. There used to be a community center up the street from my house called Studio 450. There used to be a guy there, his name is Ted Topcat. He actually used to give feedback to me and my um, production partner, Reese on our beats. So for, for us to be doing this type of thing brought back that same feeling. It's a little like a Big Brother program for producers. Araya Dawson, who produces under the name Seoul, spelled like the city in South Korea, has been the beneficiary of that mentorship. Nine months ago, he quit his job as a sushi chef and took the leap into making music full-time. But at that point, he'd only played his beats for a few close friends. His first public outing was at a live recording of the Beat Club podcast at PA's Lounge in Somerville. I was, like, real nervous. I had no idea what I was doing. I was just like, I'm going to just go up and I guess I'll just, I guess I'll just play beats, whatever, and that's it. But it was dope just to be able to play it and have their heads nodding and being like, oh, all right, like this, this kid got something going on. And, you know, that kind of began the whole confidence building. Feeling emboldened, Dawson entered a stew beat battle. The experience has already begun to pay off. It was through the stew that Dawson connected with his producing partner and started a collaboration with a local rapper. And this weekend, he'll compete in the Stew Beat Showcase season finale. The payoff? $1,000 and another step on the road to realizing his dream. That's Amelia Mason reporting. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Evan Sobel, Chris Jensen, and Dan Mozzie. Our theme music is by Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. If you enjoyed this week's show, follow our Facebook page at Next New England. We've got stories from around the region, videos, and a lot more. It's facebook.com slash nextnewengland. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Melville Charitable Trust. And it's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.